Turn your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, it's good to be together with all of you this morning. And uh, so encouraging just to be able to walk in. I uh, got here about 8.30 this morning and just to hear the worship team uh, preparing for worship, preparing songs to sing. So appreciate Jake and LaVon and Lilia and Heather uh, just helping us to worship God this morning. So uh, Philippians chapter 1, last Sunday, uh, Joel began uh, to introduce the theme uh, that's going to take place as we study the book of Philippians, and he talked about having a renewed mind. And so we're going to talk today about Philippians chapter 1, just the first 20 verses or so. And what we're going to talk about is we're going to look at, if my clicker is on, let's see. We're going to talk about gospel community. Uh, gospel community uh, is dripping on every verse of the first 20 verses of Philippians chapter 1. I think it's actually all over the, the book of Philippians as we learn about gospel community, which I've defined like this. If you want to take notes, you could just write down this formula, and you have a good picture of what the sermon is going to be about. Uh, but it's about friendship, and when you couple that with mission, you get gospel community. So specifically, if you have uh, friendships that are shaped by the gospel and glued together by the gospel, uh, and you add a mission-mindedness to uh, our Christian lives that we want to spread the gospel, what you get is gospel community. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And I suspect the church was actually struggling with both of these things that we looked at, uh, or both of these things in this formula that I have. Uh, I suspect the church was fearful of the opposition that they would get due to the gospel. And I also suspect that the church was uh, maybe struggling with some issues of their in their relationships. I anticipate they had some pockets of simmering conflict and disunity. Uh, and we can sort of pick up on that throughout the letter of Philippians because towards the end we find out about uh, a couple disciples named Euodia and Syntyche that seem to have this sort of simmering conflict. They were at odds with one another and need some help in their relationship. Uh, and then in Philippians chapter 2, that great passage about the humility of Jesus, uh, it's not just uh, you know, expressing something incredible about Jesus, it's also calling us to imitate that same humility in our relationships. And so I think behind all of these things, uh, there were some challenges in unity in the book of Philippians or in the church in Philippi. Uh, I would also add this, any group of people that uh, is highly relational and has an urgent sense of mission is going to have some, some challenges with conflict. Uh, you got to anticipate that. So any organization, any group uh, is inevitably going to have conflict if they have uh, a highly relational group and an urgent sense of mission. And the only way to avoid conflict is to simply become indifferent towards the mission or to become so disengaged relationally uh, that you don't have any uh, reason to fight over anything. And so that means the church is potentially a hotbed for conflict, especially if we don't learn how to resolve it early on. And uh, so that's kind of what we're going to talk about. We're not going to do a lesson on conflict resolution, but we're going to talk about gospel community this morning. Uh, you know, the, a ring is typically a good symbol of community, relationships, and companionship. Uh, the most common is a wedding ring, right? Uh, this is actually not my first wedding ring. Uh, 
I've only been married once, uh, to be clear. Uh, it's not my first wedding ring. Uh, the first one I actually lost about 72 hours after I was married. Uh, so that wasn't, that didn't go over great. Uh, and this is actually not my second wedding ring either. Uh, it's actually not my third. This is my fourth wedding ring. Uh, and I can laugh about it now, but uh, it wasn't always a laughing matter. So uh, the next wedding ring I get is actually going to be a tattoo on my finger. Uh, and if I lose that one, we got much bigger problems. But, you know, most wedding rings, they start out really shiny. Uh, they're just perfect wedding rings, right? And over time, the wear and tear, even this one, I can look at it, and there's all sorts of scratches and dings on it already. Uh, just the normal wear and tear of wearing a wedding ring. Uh, when friends of ours were engaged, they actually decided to, to make their own wedding rings out of clay, and they intentionally put all their fingerprints on the wedding ring, and then they made a mold from which the metal rings were made. And so their wedding rings at the very beginning had all sort of rough edges around it, and they were imperfect. And the idea that they had was that they would make these wedding rings that look imperfect, but the wear and tear over time would actually wear away at the rough edges and smooth it out. And I've always thought that's such a powerful picture about relationships. Which marriage would you want to have? Would you want to have the one that starts out perfect but just gets banged up over time? Or would you want to have the, the marriage that starts out acknowledging some imperfections, but you mature in your love and you become perfected over time? Uh, I could use that same illustration to describe relationships in our church. Which one do you want over time? Do you want the one that starts out with the delusion that everything is perfect, and then it sort of wears away and gets dinged up over time? Or do you want the one that acknowledges that we're all imperfect people, but God brings us together and matures our love so that we're perfected over time. That's, I think, a great picture for what we're going to look at. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 through 3, we'll just read the introduction here. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have the introduction. Paul and Timothy were actually involved in planting this church in Philippi. You can read about that in Acts 16. Now actually, uh, 10 years later, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, roughly 10 years. Uh, Paul had since moved on from Philippi. Uh, he found himself in prison, almost certainly in Rome, uh, where he wrote this letter that we're about to begin. And Ten years earlier, there's no way that Paul could have envisioned the place that this church would have in his own heart. And we're going to look at these two uh, aspects of friendship and mission through the idea of partnership and abounding love. And so the first thing I want to talk about is an active partnership in the gospel. An active partnership. Look on in verse 3, and it says... This It says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, Paul prays and 
tells us about this joyful thanksgiving that he had because of the partnership in the gospel that he shared with the Philippian church. This word partnership, it's, in Greek, it's the same word that's often translated as fellowship in the New Testament. Uh, and so, actually, that's the, the word we use much more often is the idea of fellowship in our church. And the, basically, the idea of fellowship is a common life together. We share a common life in the gospel. And the Philippians' partnership with Paul was evidenced by a number of things that we could see throughout this letter. Uh, If you were to read in chapter 4, verse 15, we read about the, the financial aid that the Philippian church provided Paul as he was sent out from Macedonia. And so they shared in the gospel in that way. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 30, we read about them, the church struggling for the gospel just like Paul did. And so they they were in the battle, so to speak, to spread the gospel and standing firm in the gospel in that way. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 19, we read about them praying for one another. Uh, All of that is uh, very much so behind the idea or the evidence of a strong partnership in the gospel. I think we tend to use the word fellowship somewhat superficially. Uh, Generally, Christians talk about fellowship in a very superficial way so that hanging out with, let's say, a non-Christian and talking about the weather and talking about sports and talking about work and talking about the kids uh, would be just hanging out. But if I were to swap out the non-Christian with the Christian, suddenly it magically becomes fellowship. But it's the exact same thing. And so typically what we mean by fellowship, and I blame that man right there. Uh, I blame that man. Just kidding. Uh, Because typically what we mean by fellowship is we mean just having cordial conversation. And I know Joel doesn't mean that necessarily by that. But typically when we make announcements and we say, hey, after church, have fellowship in the back outside, uh, we're basically implying it's just cordial conversation. And then when you get to the parking lot and get in your car, guess what? Fellowship is over. Not true. The fellowship continues. Even as you go off in your separate ways, we are still partners. We are still in fellowship. We're not in physical proximity to one another, but we still share the same partnership in the gospel, just as Paul, who was in prison, not in physical proximity with the Philippian church, is still a partner in the gospel. Uh, If you think that once you hit the parking lot, the fellowship is over, you got a pretty thin idea of fellowship. The fellowship goes on. There's a mindset required to have a meaningful partnership or fellowship in the gospel. It's more than a mindset, but it certainly begins there. If you think about the analogy of a marriage, my wife is at home right now. I'm still married even though I'm here. I'm still going to act in such a way that's in accordance with me being a married man, even though I'm here and she's there. Uh, Because there's still a marriage that exists. And so I'm living my life and thinking about my life in view of the fact that I'm a married man. The same is true in terms of a partnership 
is we live our life, when you go off to work or you go off to campus or you go off to your neighborhood, you're still thinking that, hey, I share a partnership with the Chippewa Valley Church and disciples all around the world for that matter. There's a partnership in the gospel. No, we share a common investment uh, in the gospel. A partnership describes the shared responsibilities and privileges that would come with a gospel partnership. We're in the gospel business, so to speak. And so what investment should we make in the gospel? Well, we don't compare ourselves with one another to think about what type of investment or commitment we should have towards the gospel. What we should look to is we should look ultimately to Jesus. What kind of commitment did he have to the gospel? And then maybe we could look to examples like the Apostle Paul, who we're going to find out was ready to die for the gospel uh, in chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, He was committed to the gospel. And so what about us? What devotion do we have to the gospel and do we share with one another? You know, I appreciate Caleb Moose. Uh, about a month, uh, month ago, Caleb and I were sitting around our dining room table. Uh, I think LaVon was actually there as well, but then LaVon had to leave a little early, and so Caleb and I just stuck around and were talking. And Caleb just said to me, uh, he said, hey, I really want to help sharing my faith and sharing the gospel. He said something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. But then he went on and he said, it must be really discouraging to feel like you're the only one sharing your, your faith on campus. Now, I've never felt that way. Uh, I never said that. I never thought that. In one sense, I was actually, are you telling me no one else is sharing your faith? (laughs) Uh, But uh, I was actually really encouraged by what he was implying when he said that because he was saying, look, we're partners in the gospel and we're all together in this. And since then, I think he's been sharing his faith quite a bit. He's got five or so people that he's been reaching out to. I've met three of them, so I know they're at least real. Um, I don't know about the other two, but we'll find out. It's encouraging to see him make the effort to go, you know what, I'm a partner in the gospel too, even though he wasn't thinking in those terms. You know, look on in verse 12. We're going to skip a few verses here. We'll come back to it. Uh, from chapter, from, sorry, from verse 12 all the way to verse 20, we see this partnership displayed, I think, in a number of ways. Uh, in verse 12, it says, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. You know, it must have been really easy when Paul was imprisoned for the people to be discouraged. I mean, Philippian church probably could have looked at Paul and go, wow, that's a major hindrance to the gospel. Uh, The apostle Paul is in chains. What's going to happen now? And Paul just goes, look, I want you to know something about my circumstances. It may look like the gospel has been slowed down, but this has actually served to advance the gospel. What an incredible example of faith in the midst of difficult circumstances. You know, to look at this and to see there's an opportunity here that actually what happened is Paul just got a different mission field because now he had a bunch of people in the whole palace guard that he was going to be able to interact with and word was going to go and, uh, you know, seep throughout the whole palace guard and they were going to find out that the reason why this man was in chains was because of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that they became Christians, but I would tell you 
just as a teaser, go to the end of the book because you'll find out that some from Caesar's household send their greetings implying that, hey, hint, hint, wink, wink, uh, some who used to call Je- or, sorry, Caesar Lord are now calling Jesus Lord. And so God was working even in the midst of this uh, through Paul's faith and through his example. Uh, It goes on and says, and, by the way, it's not over, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So they dared to proclaim it before. But now they dared all the more. I mean, they were emboldened to share their faith because they saw that if Paul, who is suffering and in chains right now because of the gospel, is still having an incredible impact, then I can step forward and do that as well. And so they were emboldened to share their faith without fear. It goes on and he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter... Do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. In other words, yeah, I get it. I'm in chains. I'm suffering. Uh, Not only that, some people that are preaching Christ, they're not even doing it from good motives. It doesn't look great. But guess what? It's true that they're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. But God is still at work. And he goes on and says this. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? There's a part of me that goes, man, that seems like it matters a lot. You got people that are troublemakers, that are selfishly ambitious, that are envious and rivalrous. That seems like a big deal. But Paul goes, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, let's be clear. There was false motives. It wasn't a false message. I think Paul would have been far more concerned if they were spreading a false message. But they were preaching the gospel. They were preaching Christ. And there were some unseemly motives going on there. And Paul, as a result, was suffering more because of it. They were stirring up trouble for him. And Paul goes, that's not the issue. What does that matter? What matters is that Christ is preached. And so I just rejoice because of that. I think there's a lot of things that go on in our world that we think matter quite a bit. And a lot of it has to do with how it affects us. And... In one sense, I think these things do matter. Those people are going to answer before God for the motives within their own heart. In that sense, it matters. But in the sense of, is Christianity at risk? I think the main thing is that Christ is preached. That we're going to continue to spread that message and we can rejoice in that. He goes on to talk about his own experience. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers... Hint, hint, keep praying for me. Your prayers matter. Through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He goes on and says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage 
so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether I die or whether I go on living, my concern is that Christ is exalted in my life. I think the greater challenge might have been living uh, and continuing on. You know, I love this passage because it partly makes Paul seem normal. You know, you can look at all this and go, wow, Paul seems like super human. But it just says sufficient courage. It seemed like he's tempted to struggle in the circumstances that he's facing. But thank God that he provided the spirit of Jesus. And thank God that there's people praying for him so that he has sufficient courage. Just good enough courage to get through the challenges of the hour. I love the example that we see all throughout this. There's an incredible partnership and commitment to the gospel in all of that. The other thing I want to talk about is abounding love. Abounding love. You know, it's not just that we should be devoted to the work and spread of the gospel, but it's also the gospel actually has an effect on our relationships together. There should be a way that we love one another and work together. And in verse 7, we see how Paul's love just abounds for this church. And he says, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel... All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul just puts his heart out there. Uh, Paul had the Philippian Christians in his heart. He felt deeply for them. You know, he had planted the church some, some years earlier, and Paul recognized that they had all shared in God's grace with him. They all had a common uh, need for the grace of God in in their life. You know, that word feel is that word phroneo that Joel mentioned last Sunday. Uh, He just says, it's right for me to feel or to think this way about all of you. Why? Because I got you in my heart. And just a side note, you can't have people in your heart unless you open your heart you got to open up your heart to one another. You know, think about what Paul says here. He says, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection in Greek is really interesting. It's basically a word that means bowels. So I I love you with the bowels of Christ Jesus. I mean, it, it refers to basically with the guts of Christ. And I love how... Uh, you know, Ed Anton is a teacher in our fellowship of churches, and he described this word, and he just said, it's like Paul is saying that if I could just open up my body and my intestines could just shoot out of my body and wrap around you in a warm embrace, then you would know just how much I love you. All right, now can we get some wet naps in here, right? Uh, It has this, this meaning of this deep affection, this compassion, this love. Personally, that's the kind of minister I want to be. I want to have all of you in my heart. 
That's the kind of Christian I want to be. That's the kind of church that we ought to be. We should have deep love and affection for one another. There's a, I don't know if you guys ever, if you know who John Newton is. John Newton, he wrote the song or the hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, Amazing Grace is probably the most famous hymn, uh, English-speaking hymn. Uh, But, you know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Uh, We got to get those lyrics in our heart, right? John Newton also wrote some other things. Uh, He wrote a letter to a minister. The other minister had intentions of publicly criticizing another minister over theological controversy. And so this letter is just known as controversy. Uh, Now, I know it's a little bit outdated because we don't have controversy in our own day and age. Um, But uh, I think it would be worth a read if you have maybe felt strongly about certain controversies in our day and age and have felt the need to speak up on social media or other social environments, and maybe you've said the right thing in the wrong way or the wrong time, I think it'd be worth a great, you know, it'd be a great read for you. It seems applicable both to the sermon today, but also I think with what Eli shared a couple Sundays ago, which was awesome, uh, about some of those principles and how we handle conflict or, or difficult issues. This is what John Newton, the author or the author of Amazing Grace, wrote to this other minister. He said, if you account him, meaning if you consider the other minister that you disagree with, if you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him, therefore, You must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness that you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. I read that, just put chills over me. That line about, you know, the person you disagree with or are in controversy over, that person will be nearer to you in heaven than your nearest friend is upon earth. I believe that's true. That we ought to have such affection. That that should overshadow how we talk about even difficult issues. We should have incredible affection. In fact, the affection of Christ Jesus should come through us. You know, Paul goes on, he shares his own heart, but then he goes on and he prays for these Philippians. And he says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
Paul wanted the same love and affection that he had for them to become a part of the congregation there. He wanted their love to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He wanted them to be able to discern what is best, not what's good enough, not, what, not mediocrity. We're not drawing a line between good and evil and then sort of stepping on the good side and go, okay, I can just sort of walk the edge here. But what's best? Let's discern that so we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And all of that is to the glory and praise of God. In other words, sometimes we pursue what is best not because we want God to be glorified. Sometimes it's far more about our own glory. And we want the nice house, you know, all clean, and we want, uh, you know, the perfect job and to make the good money, and we want to get perfect grades here. And that's all great, but at some point you got to go, is that more about me or is it about God being glorified? Because that will help us to discern, is this really about God or is it about me? And it will help us to discern what truly is best before God. You know, our love should not be squishy sentimentality, but it should mature more and more like those wedding rings that over time the wear and tear would help us to be perfected. Here's a couple takeaways, and then we'll pray for communion. Uh, recommit to the gospel work we share together and reframe your circumstances with a faithful perspective. There's always opportunity in the way God is working in our life. Remember the grace that we share and refresh your love for one another. Let's pray as we take the Lord's Supper and let's remember the one who loved us perfectly. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, God, we are so grateful for your love. We're grateful for your son who shed his blood uh, in order for us to be forgiven and to be reconciled to you. I do ask that you help our love as a church to just abound more and more. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would also help us to be great, a great example and a great witness to the world around us uh, of the great truths of the gospel. Please help us to take advantage of opportunities that we have. Uh, please help our faith to grow so that we can honor and please you. We thank you for this time, and we pray these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.